0: Welcome to Planet Geo, the podcast where we talk about our amazing planet, how it works, and why it matters to you. All right, Chris, how are we doing today? I'm doing great. How about you? Um, as usual, when we're recording Planet <laughs> Geo, I'm doing great. Oh, this I know, awesome. I know. I've been
1: this looking awesome. forward to this all day long. I feel the same way. I love doing this with you. It's uh, it's a good part of my life.
0: Yeah. So today we interviewed. Dr. Ian Miller, who is a curator and director at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. And this was such a fun conversation. Yeah, it was. This was totally fun. Yeah, right?
1: I I knew right away. I, I've i seen Ian on lots of videos. And I in fact, I assign some of the videos that he's in to my summer science students when we're out. You know, they're watching on him on the iPad. And he is such an engaging, intelligent, inspiring person that I... Yeah. You know, we just decided let's reach out to this guy and see if he'll talk to us. And and he was more than willing, which was just fantastic.
0: Yeah, so we cover a lot of stuff in this interview. I mean, we wide-ranging things from what a mass extinction event looks like, how a giant meteorite impact, you know, killed off the dinosaurs and gave rise to basically mammals on Earth. Right.
1: And how this is like right in his backyard. And it's such a rare discovery. You know, what we're talking about, what he spent a lot of time talking about today was the first million years after the meteor, you know, slammed into Earth and caused the extinction of the dinosaurs and gave a green card, if you will, to the
0: mammals. Wait, <laughs> what the hell's a green card? No, not card? a
1: green card. That's a bad analogy. A green light, okay? A green light. A green light. Okay.
0: A green light to the mammals. Yeah. <laughs> not um, a green card. What's a green card? I don't know. I, don't I was going to go with it, but... Very cool. Yeah, stuff. you almost um, went off
1: on some tangents there. I'll tell you what, I was a little worried. Like you you got you, you said, "Hey, let's get philosophical here." And I thought, "Oh shit, yeah. here
0: we go." Um, oh no. Here we go. <laughs> like, oh no. Here uh, goes Dr. BS Jesse Ryman going off on his tangents, yeah, getting on uh, my soapbox geez. about things. That's right. My soapbox is pretty Holy tall. Holy
1: cow. What a, you are a piece of work, you know that? Oh my
0: gosh. <laughs> well, I avoided it. We we avoided disaster. Well, problems. hold That's on. Good. That
1: that kinda you only kind of avoided it. You got a little deep there, my friend. Well, you
0: got to. When you talk to somebody super interesting, you got to got to get in the weeds. Oh, there. I know.
1: I know. You just got to go with it. That's right.
0: Yeah. So that's super interesting conversation. Uh, let's get to it. Yes, let's do it. This week, uh, we are happy to interview Dr. Ian Miller, who is the director of Earth and Space Sciences at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. Dr. Miller, welcome to Planet Geo. How are you doing?
2: Good. It's great to be here, you guys. Uh, Thanks for having me
0: on. Oh, yeah. It's great to have you. We are super
2: excited to talk
0: to you. we got a bunch of really cool stuff we're going to talk about. But just by way of a brief introduction, Dr. Miller, you're the director, as I said, of Earth and Space Sciences at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. You've been uh, working there at the Denver Museum for a long time, since
2: 2008. Is that right? Well, 2006 is when I showed up as a postdoc, but I be, I became a curator in 2008. Yeah. Okay, a curator since yeah.
0: 2008. And before that, you got your PhD at Yale. Uh, you also got a master's at Yale. And you have a Bachelor of Science from Colorado College. Is that right?
2: Yep. So I, I kind of came home uh, here to Colorado when I got the job <laughs> awesome. at the museum, which was exciting.
0: Uh, yeah, it's a great place to to do geoscience out there in, in, That's Denver, right. in Denver area. Yeah.
2: <laughs> That's, That's awesome. right. It's just out the back out the back door, That's right? right?
0: Yeah, Yeah. it's amazing. It's amazing. Um, So you've done a lot of stuff. You've published a lot of papers. You're you're kind of a paleontologist by by trade, which we'll we'll get to. You've won a few awards. I would like to highlight here. You, You won the journalism award for the Rocky Mountain Association of Geologists in 2012, and you won the American Association of Petroleum Geologists Geosciences in the Media Award in 2015. And then the last one I want to highlight, which is a particularly interesting one, is the Colorado College spirit of adventure award. That is a <laughs> yeah. cool, yeah. that's a cool right. award. Can yeah. you tell that me what, what <laughs> was that a particular thing that won you that award or
2: what was the, um, mostly I think mentoring students, uh, over the years. And since we're, you know, I'm geographically nearby Colorado college and it's my alma mater. Uh, I, I mentor a lot of students from there and they've just been involved in all these incredible projects. And actually it was the students who put me up for the award. So it's an alumni that's association cool. award. And, uh, uh, yeah. So I was lucky enough to receive it a couple of years ago from the, from the alumni association.
0: That's great. Well, it has That's a great, great ring to it. The, uh, the spirit. Of the yeah, program. no That's kidding. Awesome. <laughs>
2: great.
1: Yeah. Ian, when you went to, uh, that college, did you go there
2: with the idea that you were going to major in geology right away? No, I, I actually was uh I thought I would be a, a medical doctor, right? I mean, it was sort of one of those things like you, you know, you the parents and the grandparents and maybe the community and stuff put some kind of expectation on you of what you think you should be. Or yeah. and so I got to CC and I I you know, I I knew I liked geology. I'd been collecting fossil plants and I grew up in a big mining district in eastern Washington State, and so I had tons of minerals on the my shelves and my bedroom and things like that. and uh, it, But I didn't realize it was going to be a career choice. And that didn't happen until a couple of key classes at CC that sort of jump-started that.
0: What, what was it? What, was there a particular moment that inspired you to go into the geosciences? And if so, can you describe that to us?
2: Yeah, so there are a few. Um, my first class at Colorado College, so Colorado College is on this thing called the block plan, So you take a single class at a time. It's the same number of hours as a normal class. But what it allows for is since you're completely steeped in that one class, the students and the professor can just sort of pick up and take off and go to some amazing locale in the American West. And my first class at Colorado College took me to Yellowstone. And uh, it was just this uh, truly remarkable and memorable experience. Uh, uh, The professor who, who taught that class just threw us right into the elements. I can remember crossing rivers and sleet storms and things like that, which I'm sure was totally dangerous and the school would have been completely unhappy <laughs> with, but, uh, but it left its mark. Yeah. But what the school doesn't know won't hurt
0: it, right? That's
2: the, That's the, right. the approach exactly. to do that. It was just that enthusiasm, right? And you're outside and he was so enthusiastic. I mean, he was, you know, of course he was leading the class. And in that particular case, we were in the Lamar River Valley and, Oh, Um, And we crossed the river there, and we hiked up uh, what's called Special Ridge, where they have the stacked uh, forests, the buried fossil forests. And uh, I can still sort of remember sitting next to these petrified, standing redwood trees and thinking about what that meant.
0: Well, nah, so. I don't ever want to give Chris too much credit, but this is my experience. <laughs> my experience was Chris Boyce. I mean, Chris leads this high school trip that goes out to Yellowstone and out to the the Mountain West for uh, soon-to-be high school seniors. And I took this trip, and Chris was that inspiration for me. And that's, that's the last awesome. good thing I'll say about Chris Boyce for many weeks. But, uh, <laughs> but yes yeah. Chris. Chris was that inspiration for me. (laughs) So I'm actually in Yellowstone. I remember we had a very, you know, very kind of uh, detailed and and intimate conversation about geoscience in Yellowstone. Yeah,
1: yeah, we did, we did.
0: So Ian, uh, can I follow up on the the specimen ridge
1: and the petrified forest? Is that because you're kind of. uh, you're an interesting mix of you know biology and geology. You're a paleobotanist. You're a geologist. Um, is that where it all started? Then, with the did you develop an interest in the
2: paleobotany because of that? Also, yeah. Well, it's a couple of different things. I mean, that was key. There's no doubt, right? That sort of opened my eyes to this sort of world of of fossil plants. In one aspect, the other person who made a big difference in that regard was this uh, curator. He was, he was sort of a volunteer curator at the Burke Museum in Seattle. And he's an incredibly eclectic guy. His, his name was uh, Wes Ware. And he was a poet and clarinetist. And, hmm. and he actually became quite well known in the field. My family had some connections with him. My grandfather was also an artist. So he would come out to where we lived in eastern Washington, and uh, we would collect fossil plants. And so it was a little bit of that experience, plus then getting to college and understanding that this data was was a way to understand ancient worlds, really. I mean, a way to time travel, for lack of a better term. So it was a couple of threads, uh, uh, Chris, that kind of got me to that idea that paleobotany could be could be the yeah. thing.
1: Yeah, <laughs> very very cool.
2: That's awesome.
1: All right, so Ian, I am extremely interested in the work that you and Tyler have done at Corral Bluffs. I have a lot of questions to ask you, but can you can you kind of set the stage for what you guys discovered here?
2: Yeah. So. Uh- At this site called Corral Bluffs, which is just outside of the city of Colorado Springs. The truth is it's actually incorporated Colorado Springs. It's not developed yet, but it is within the city limits of Colorado Springs. Uh, We made this remarkable discovery on life after the time of the dinosaurs. So it turns out that over the last hundred or so years, paleontologists and geologists have been really interested in, you know, how life transition from the dinosaur time to the time afterwards, which is sort of the time of the mammals, the age of the mammals.
0: Can you give us what, what, yeah. what kind of times are we talking? Can you give us some years or millions of years here?
2: Absolutely. So the age of reptiles, which we call the Mesozoic, goes from about 250 million years ago until about 66 million years ago. It's a whole bunch of time. And then the time after that, which is the last 66 million years leading up to the present day, is the age of mammals. You know, it's a little bit of a you know a misnomer because mammals lived alongside dinosaurs. Uh, in fact, our group of animals is slightly older than the dinosaur group of animals. But we just sort of were always in their shadow. And it wasn't until 66 million years ago, when we see the end of the time of the dinosaurs, the end of the Cretaceous, that sort of the world flips from this dinosaur dominated world to a mammal dominated. I'm stopping in a few places just to, you know, so I just don't drone on.
0: So
1: please. Ask <laughs> that, them, that, that's awesome. Them. That's great. We love that. <laughs> we're, we're very
0: familiar with the feeling of droning on, especially Chris Wallace. So. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right, Ian. so um, oh, can you talk a little bit about
1: what exactly you found at Corral Bluffs and why that's so significant?
2: Yeah. So the life on Earth, multicellular life on Earth since about 545 million years ago is sort of punctuated, if you will, by these extinction events. We call them mass extinction events. And a mass extinction is when you lose 50 percent of the species on land and in the sea. So it's just sort of an arbitrary number. But suffice it to say, it's really bad. Right. So and we've got we've got five of these things in the history of multicellular life, and the most recent of which is 66 million years ago. And these, these events, they all have different causes, and these events uh, serve to sort of reorganize life. You can kind of think of them as like the biological reset button. And the last one, we call it the end Cretaceous extinction. It wiped out all non-avian dinosaurs. So that that is to say, basically, it caused all dinosaurs to go extinct, except the birds, and dinosaurs were this incredibly dominant group. They they dominated the planet for close to 200 million years. And uh, mammals are around, but they're sort of in their shadow. But once they're off the landscape, mammals get a shot. So this discovery in Kraublofs is all about that time right afterwards, all about when mammals start to re sort of populate the planet and diversify.
1: Okay. So, following up with that then, you, or actually, I think the story goes in that a museum volunteer found a skull in a rock.
2: That's right. So, um, there's always more detail than what, you know, we sort of present, uh, you know, in our sort of short snippets and our stories. But that is essentially right. So... um, Tyler and I are both paleontologists. I'm on the plant side of the paleontology world. I'm a paleobotanist and Tyler's a vertebrate paleontologist. And in fact, his specialty is fossil turtles, but he covers the spectrum. He does all kinds of of vertebrates, but he and I were both uh, scientists who had worked on the extinction of the Cretaceous world, the extinction of, of the dinosaurs, so to speak. I was working on the plants. He was working on the vertebrates and, when he came to the museum, I've been at the museum for about 15 years, and he's been here about seven or so, six or seven. And uh, we sort of put our heads together and thought, where could we make an impact in, in the field? If we teamed up, we're like, where could we make an impact? And we knew, I mean, people always want have wanted to know for a long time what happened after the extinction of the dinosaurs. And yet most people have really focused like who went extinct and why they went extinct. And part of the problem was there wasn't a lot of fossils after the boundary. So mm-hmm. you can imagine this unbelievable diversity of fossils and all kinds of amazing things to study. You hit this line where, you know, it's this, this incredible event that caused that world to go extinct. And there was not a lot of fossils afterwards. And without those fossils, we were sort of in the dark, right? We were just, didn't really know, you know, what the story was. And yet, of course we have the modern day. We, in fact, have many amazing fossil sites that are just a little bit younger, but they're not in that sweet spot right after the boundary. And, uh, you know, everything that we see outside our window today had to have some kind of ancestor that survived that extinction event. So we wanted to know what that sort of early period of, of this rediversification of the world looks like. Okay. Um, so, 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 yeah. So
1: go ahead, Chris. Yeah. Well, yeah, so what did you find them in? That's what I'm really interested in.
2: Yeah, so we so we got so so we decided we were going to spend some time trying to figure out if we could collaborate on this problem. And we rolled out the geologic maps, and we kind of thought, you know, we were going to end up in Bolivia or Siberia, fi- making a discovery if we were so lucky to to make yeah. one in this time frame. And, but the first thing you do is you really need to look in your backyard, and particularly here in the American <laughs> West, we have the right age rocks uh, about this problem. And, so Tyler was looking through our collections, things that had been donated to us before, and I had worked in this area for a long time, but had not found these fossils that turned out to be in plain sight. But one of our volunteers had found a partial skull. It was the palate of a plant-eating mammal, and it was just so. It was just two rows of teeth and then the palate. It was, for all intents and purposes, a skull from that time period. But it was covered with this type of rock we call a concretion. So it had the teeth sticking through, but it had this really sort of whitish colored precipitate, this minerals that had sort of glommed onto it that we call a concretion. And Tyler sort of put the pieces together. He, He had previously worked in South Africa, and he put the pieces together that maybe there were some fossils in that area that we hadn't seen before because they were in concretions. And it all came down to this fossil that this volunteer had found and was sitting in our collections
1: because then he knew what to look for right the kind exactly. of rock right so exactly. all right can you explain what a concretion is
2: yeah so a concretion is is it's just a type of rock formation and it forms around an organic nucleus so in this case you know what we're talking about here today is really these these skulls of early mammals um, but it could be anything it could be a chip of wood you know a twig or it could be a tooth of a mammal or something like that and as those things get stuck in the the mud of a, a stream or a river or a floodplain and they're rotting if the minerals are in the groundwater are are the right sort of sweet or a cocktail of minerals they will start to glom on to that rotting thing and uh, form sort of like a little shell around it.
1: So, what's the shape of it?
2: Oh, they're they're all bizarre shapes, right? Okay, are they? Sometimes they have a circular feel to them, but they can be very globose and sort of you know bizarrely shaped this, if you will how careful do you have to
1: be when you open these up because i see you on video all the time I'm, I'm, yeah, you know right. i see you just cracking
2: yeah. these open with a geology hammer you know that's not really what you do is it oh yeah well unfortunately we do have to break them and we don't like to we really don't because they are much more fragile than you might imagine well they're they're really quite secure in the concretion themselves but it turns out that something like only one and maybe three or four hundred of these things has something interesting in it. We've taken a few concretions where they look—they look exactly like, let's say, a turtle skull that's been roll, rolled in you know bread dough or whatever. And we're like, there's got to be a skull in this thing. And we send—we send it off to our preparators, who we—it takes a very special and skilled hand to to extract these from the concretions, and it's all contract work and it costs a lot of money and we've sent some of these things <laughs> off to these folks and they'll put in like eight or 10 hours and they'll call us up and you're like are you sure there's a fossil in this <laughs> and so suffice it to say we do have to break these things to actually see if there's something in it but they do have a tendency to break into little pieces uh, but that's what glue is for us so, yeah. so <laughs> okay so i have to ask then ian uh, why here well
0: before before we get to that I want to get to what, what did you find in the concretions? So we found these concretions and like, how does this tell us about the transition from dinosaurs to mammals?
2: Yeah. So it turns out the sort of the sweet spot is about a million or so years after the extinction of the dinosaurs. And a lot happens in those million years as the planet is, is taken over by really placental mammals. Uh, so the group of mammals that dominates the planet today. And, um, before this discovery, we had something like four or five partial skulls from this time period of mammals in all museums in North America. Wait a minute, four or five? Four or five? <laughs> wow! And oh my gosh! And so those uh, those four or five were found in a hundred years of paleontologists looking. Wow! We Ugh. once the pieces came together, it was really just a moment. It was a Sunday. I can remember it vividly. It was like Sunday at like 1030 in the morning. And we were in a place we now call Skull Valley. And Tyler sort of fatefully picked up the first one and cracked it open. And he saw the cross section of a skull in this (laughs) concretion. And we were there with it was me and then this volunteer who had found this uh, specimen that had been sitting in the museum for like five Uh or six years. And so she and I, within minutes, found a skull each as well. And Tyler found another one. And we literally doubled the number of skulls from this time period in twenty minutes. That's wow. crazy! What a story! That was wild. We were blown away. Uh, that probably will never happen to us again. Yeah. So it was it was like a period of time that just was you, know, you might say it was shrouded in mystery or something like that, but it was just devoid of data. And we all of a sudden put a lot of data into the into the equation.
1: So you um, say that probably won't ever happen again. But you're still you're discovering fossils in the same place, right? Absolutely. Even
2: absolutely. Now. Yeah, we've got hundreds of skulls now. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. And uh, and of course we've built this whole plant record alongside it. So there, we knew there were plants there before. It was the reason I'd been there a few times before. But plants aren't so rare from this age rocks, but without the vertebrate story, we were sort of, we could tell a cool plant story, but it was pulling it all together, which made it so sweet.
1: Wow. All right. Well, that's great. Can you talk a little bit about what you found? And first of all, what is the KT boundary? Okay. Yep. And then what's,
2: what was, what did you find just below it? At the KT boundary and then above it. Yeah, so the KT boundary uh, stands for Cretaceous and Tertiary, which marks this boundary between these two amazing periods in Earth's history. We actually refer to it today as the KPG boundary, Cretaceous Paleogene, which... None of us like, so we still call it the KT. <laughs> <laughs> so we're still getting used to KPG. Uh, yeah. KT sounds. Uh, right I didn't back. like that either. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so what happens at that moment in time is remarkable. We're hit by a giant space rock moving at something like a hundred thousand miles an hour, and it comes in from the south. We think, and it slams into the Yucatan Peninsula, and it pulls outer space literally to the surface of the planet. And it blows this hole in the ground, something like 100 miles across and 20, uh, 15 miles deep, and sends a shockwave from Mexico to Alaska in five minutes. Oh and <laughs> all this ejecta is blown out of the, uh, the hole it creates. And it turns out, we think, that there's this moment of incredible catastrophe, tsunamis, and blocks of rock the size of cars that make it all the way to Haiti, 500 miles from the impact site and this shockwave and firestorm. And then it quieted down a little bit, but there was all this stuff blown into sub orbit around the earth. And the modeling suggests that there's a, about a 20 to 24 hour periodicity to this. And about 20 hours later, it started raining molten rock everywhere, which wow. would have really sucked. So if you, yeah. if you <laughs> survive the boundary, you survive the impact, But you're in New Zealand because that's where you might have survived it. Can I interrupt
0: with a quick question here? Yeah. So we talked about plate tectonics before, but just for clarification, 66 million years ago, are we kind of in the general configuration? You know, is Denver where it is today? Is Alaska where it is today? In general, is that true? Or when you say landed in Mexico, is that actual Mexico, or is it uh, you
2: know Mexico where it used to be? That's a great question, Jesse, and and we are more or less in our current configuration. So we, if you think about us moving around the planet a little bit, we've moved longitudinally. So we were closer to Europe, but our latitude is virtually the same. In fact, Denver was about three degrees further north than it is today.
0: But its relationship to Mexico where the
2: impact took place is effectively the same. Okay. All right. It's effectively the same. The coastlines would have looked different simply because sea level was higher. But by and large, everything's about where it is compared to the present.
0: All right. So carry on. Okay. So this is a very catastrophic description that I yeah. interrupted here. Yeah, so I it's really on. good, though. It's yeah. a good description. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. So all this rock material starts raining back to the surface of the Earth, say, some 20 or 24 hours later. And as it enters the Earth's atmosphere, it melts. At the boundary itself, we see what were formerly glass beads at the boundary. We now, They're mostly clay now. But we see the evidence of raining molten rock everywhere on Earth. We find that in the ocean basins. We find it on all the continents. And oh, wow. it, essentially the modeling, because, of course, we can't go back and test this, so we have to make some good guesses. Thank goodness we can't test it. I yeah, mean, oh my God, dude, yeah. Sounds horrible. And so the the temperature we think of the atmosphere got to about the temperature it takes to bake cookies in the oven, like 350 degrees Fahrenheit. Wow! Um, Wow. There must have been fires everywhere. Yeah. So there were global fires, we think. Though there's a lot of debate on whether or not there's increased soot at the boundary or not.
1: And the other thing is how long did it take for most of the species to die? How long did they have to live through this horrible
2: time? Yeah. Some of them probably, it took them a while, right? I mean, if you were here in North America you know, we would have been probably burnt to a crisp. We were close to the impact site. And if you were in the blast wave, you would have been liquefied. That would have been bad. But if you were on the other side of the planet, you might, have, you might have lived a little longer. But we know that the dust also dimmed the sun and started to shut down photosynthesis. So even if you survive all these things, right, and, you know, three months later, the sun is dimmed. And it was probably only dimmed like 20, 25%. But that's like taking a you know, a full sun plant in your house and putting it in the corner and that plant does not survive. So the ability of many plants to photosynthesize shut down. And so now you start collapsing the whole food web and that probably starts a few months after the impact.
1: So below the boundary, you have this amazing diversity of life, plants, dinosaurs, even mammals, small though, right? Small mammals at the boundary which, how thick are we talking about on average?
2: Yeah, the boundary itself usually preserves as a centimeter or so, but but remember it's crushed in a column of rock and it's a layer of dust. And then what do you find then above it? So it's, it's hard to tease out some of these sort of events that I'm talking about, but we have a few bits of evidence that suggest that the whole ecosystem, the plant ecosystem was sort of, um, uh, it was completely reset at some level. So it was like having a global wildfire and then you go through ecological succession. So think you know, how a forest might burn and how things come back from that. And so the early pioneers of things that survive come back first. And that in this case was ferns. So some groups of ferns really do well in disturbance. We see right after the boundary, a blanket of ferns. And we call this the fern spore spike because the sediment is just packed with fern spores. Uh so that's what comes back first.
1: Wow. And so that how much higher up is that uh above the boundary clay then or the KT?
2: Yeah, so it's all playing out in centimeters. You see the boundary which might be a centimeter or two thick, but the the fern spores are in just a few centimeters of rock above it. Yeah.
1: Okay. Wow. Do you
2: have any idea the time that it took for that to happen? Well, we do to a degree. Again, it's a bit of conjecture, but we think the fern spore spike, there's actually two of them. So there's a ground cover of ferns first, and then tree ferns replace that ground cover. So there's two spikes of different types of spores. And that may have played out over a few hundred years.
1: Ian, if you can just kind of lay it out in terms of what did you guys find as you went from the bottom to the top? Okay, Okay. and then like, how did you put a timestamp on this first million years after it? How you know that's a very interesting
2: story. Okay, Um, so yeah, just sort of laying it out. We we have a very diverse end Cretaceous ecosystem, teeming with dinosaurs. Really diverse forests. We see this moment of complete devastation from the KT asteroid impact. Right afterwards, we see this proliferation of ferns all over the landscape. And uh, they become soon replaced by other successional plants. So those things that are sort of, as you can imagine, the forest coming back. And we see a lot of palms to start. So we see a, a palms also like disturbance. And we see a forest that's kind of mixed palms and a few other sort of pioneering plants. Soon they become replaced. Now we're talking a few hundred thousand years. It takes a while. And we see a couple of key groups of plants show up, one being the walnuts, and they are diversifying a lot at this moment. Wow. We call it sort of the pecan pie moment because uh, pecans are part of the, the walnut family. And so we think of that as the Wow, pecan walnuts. Pie that's wood. really interesting. <laughs> yeah, right.
0: There's a yeah. couple of <laughs> interesting things. First of all, when I think of a forest fire, you know, you think of this like pioneering species to get back to a very mature forest it takes like 100 years, but you're describing 200,000 years it takes to get back to some yeah. kind of primary producers. That what's what's the relationship there in time yeah you
2: you got it right so it, it's just that where you it's one thing if you burn a section of the landscape and the forest can come back from the edges of that burn patch yeah. think about burning the whole planet right okay and it's, it just it just plays out over a longer time scale there's certainly places where plants must have survived and repopulate the planet but it just plays out over such a longer time scale
0: Okay, and then the mammal skulls, you know, in these concretions, they come back after the ferns, is that right?
2: Yeah, so we actually see concreted bone below the boundary too. We have some dinosaur bones that are covered with this concretion stuff, right? So you can imagine the concretions are this preservational window that give us the data, and then the animals and plants are just doing their thing alongside it and getting into the fossil record. So after the boundary, we see mammal fossils Right away, and uh, we start seeing some sizable skulls about 200,000 years after the boundary when we really start seeing things kicking off. We know that there are little tiny critters before that, like rat like things, eating okay. lots of insects. You know, things think like a New York City rat kind of thing, running around <laughs> in the landscape. Yeah. Fun, real, <laughs> real fun stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah
0: exactly. <laughs> Okay. I mean, this is such an interesting thing. I have a couple, you know, sort of philosophical follow-up questions. But first, you, you've described this really amazing visual of the planet being on fire, basically. Yeah. But it's right. taking place over a couple centimeters in rock, right? Is there yeah. a a location that, you know, if I'm going to go hang out in Denver for a while, and, you know, I, I don't want to go to Red Rocks or whatever, like, where can I go to see this? Like, where can I go to look at this and, like, visualize your your the visual you just painted? Is there yeah. a place to go see this?
2: There is. And uh, the best place is really a little bit south of us in Trinidad, Colorado. So it's about a, a two and a half hour drive. And there you can actually see the KT boundary, this white stripe uh, right on a road cut on I-70. So you can like look out oh, the windows, cool. you're blazing down the freeway and you're like, there's the KT boundary. And there's places there where you can get out of the car and actually go get a chunk if you want.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we don't want to see it from the highway. We want to get off. We want to put our finger on it. You know, we want to to (laughs) think about it.
1: Ian and Jesse, we can cut this out like if you want, but Ian just a little background. I teach a three week long field course to high school seniors. It's like a 21 day geology field course. You're one of the videos that I make them that they have to watch in it. It's um, how the earth was made, the Rockies, you know, and you're featured in that in, in, a, in a few parts that I found absolutely fascinating. And it's basically that you determine the height of the early Rockies using plant fossils. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think it's absolutely awesome.
2: Yeah, sure. Um, so it turns out that plants are pretty good temperature gauges for ancient climates. In that study, which we never managed to publish for lots of reasons, God. (laughs) Really? I can't believe it. Okay. Yeah, I know, know, right? I mean, it's still that whole work kind of like ground to a halt. I still need to pick it back up. But it turns out there's something called the the terrestrial lapse rate or the temperature lapse rate. It's basically this measure of how temperature changes as you go up in elevation. Having come here to Colorado, you know that you have to wear different clothes down here on the front range than you do up in the mountains. If you could quantify that difference in temperature, you can use this terrestrial lapse rate in temperature to back out elevation. And uh, it's a rather crude tool or crude approach in some ways because the air bars are so large. But it also turns out there's nothing even that kind of comes close to fossil plants for telling past temperatures like this. So it goes basically we found fossil plants high in the rockies that gave us a temperature that was much lower than nearby forests that were should be on the lowlands and then you mm-hmm. could just take these two differences and back out the paleo elevation um, so how old are yeah. these
0: fossil the fossil plants that are giving the high elevations or the low temperatures therefore the high elevations
2: yeah, so they're all – you really need coeval sites, but in this case, they're all uh, late Paleocene, so like 60 million years old. So it's the okay. end of the sort of uplift of the Rockies here in Colorado. So it should be somewhere near their sort of maximum height or the maximum height compared to the nearby plane.
1: Okay, so two things then that I want to real quick ask you about then. So you basically, just for our listeners to get kind of a, a visual of this, you're using – like smooth margin plants to to plants that have a like a toothed margin, right?
2: Yeah. So flowering plants, think of all the hardwoods in eastern forests, will have this this sort of remarkable thing where if you take a patch of land and all the different tree species in that patch of land, and you count the number of species with smooth margins versus the smooth numbers. Smooth
0: margins. What are we talking about for margins? This is the, the yeah. tree limbs or the leaves or what?
2: we're talking about the leaves here
0: oh okay. yeah so
2: yeah so you can think of them as like either toothy or serrate sort of saw shaped on their edges or smooth having a completely continuous unbroken edge and when you go to the tropics almost every species produces a smooth margin leaf and as you go further north there's more and more toothed species
1: so you found then as you worked up the stratigraphic column that you've encountered increasingly higher ratio of tooth or sawtoothed margin leaves?
2: Essentially, uh, but rather than the stratigraphic column, we literally had a site that was sitting in the paleo mountains and a site that was sitting on the paleo la- on the plains, but you're right. So there are actually studies out there where they look at the uplift of the Andes, where in a single stratigraphic column through time, you can see an increased number of toothy things. Um, wow. either suggesting the planet is cooling or the mountains are lifting. So, okay. Yeah, so cool. what did
1: you find? How high were the early Rockies then?
2: Yeah. So at least as high as they are today, but maybe as much as twice as high as they are today. So, wow. Um, wow. so, okay, so you're uh,
1: talking Himalayan type height.
2: Well, it's we were a lot closer to sea level then. So the middle part of North America is sort of buoyed up to an elevation of about a mile high right? Denver's a mile high. But then Denver had like seawater lapping up at its, at its edge. So the differential elevation was greater, but the absolute elevation might've even been lower.
0: Okay. That makes sense. Wow. That's amazing. I must say since my undergrad, I've really never been super enthralled with fossils for some reason they just don't grab me in the same way that like a good metamorphic rock does like (laughs) there's something innate about them that's just not as exciting to me and i i know that's probably offensive you've gone some way in convincing me
2: that they're very interesting and very useful so so god you just need to go out and collect some fossils you'll be hooked you just got to get some in your hands yeah yeah. (laughs) that might be true i'll i'll
0: call you up next time i'm out. yeah. You can convince yeah. me how useful a fossil is. All right. Body. We'll
2: turn you into a paleobotanist. yet. <laughs> there we go. There we go. There you know, go. he
1: doesn't need any more
0: hobbies. I mean,
1: no, no, it's not <laughs> no that's not a good true. idea that's true. at all. That's true. Yeah.
2: All right. So, so I'm curious,
0: Andy, if we could kind of get a little bit more, you know, personal on your career path here. Like, I'm curious about the, your role in the museum and kind of what your day-to-day looks like. So can you explain the role of the Denver Museum of Nature and Science and its sort of mandate? And then also what is your job within that?
2: Yeah. So our mission is to be a catalyst and to basically inspire people when it comes to science and the natural world. So we have a staff currently of about 350 people. Wow. This is wow. We were much larger in the pre-COVID time. Not much. We were we were about 450 in the in the pre-COVID world. So we see about two to two and a half million people a year. Um, About half of those come through the front door and about half are out there in the community receiving some kind of virtual program or we come to them. So we're kind of split up. We have a huge exhibits department. We have a huge experiences or programs department, Uh, you know, lots of educators. We have a huge team of teachers on staff. And then there's a big Uh, science and collection side uh, to the museum. And those are sort of like the three legs to the stool. And then around that, of course, is just the, you know, what keeps a big institution going. Everything from building operations to finance to our whole volunteer department. We have about 2,000 volunteers that we work with here at the museum. And again, it's just getting good, accurate, compelling, exciting science to the people of Colorado and beyond. So that's sort of it in a nutshell.
0: You are right now the director of the Earth and Space Sciences at the museum, but you, before that, and you probably still have some role as a curator. Can you explain That's what right. a curator does at the muse- at a museum like the the Denver Museum? Yeah,
2: so I am still a curator. I'm, I, so as the director of the Earth and Space Sciences, I just I'm sort of like the chair at a at a um, at a university. So I kind of you know do the care and feeding of the all the Earth and Space scientists here at the museum. But as a curator, um, sort of analogous to a professor uh, in that I'm doing primary research on my sort of area of interest and, and expertise, though I don't teach. Right. So I have, I don't have any students and I don't teach any classes, but I have collections and the collections are you can sort of think of us and museums writ large as sort of the library of the planet. Right. So we are mm-hmm. the, the, the place in sort of our modern society where all the things we collect as humanity get preserved forever. <laughs> and, uh, that's so a we, great line. The curator is of our a great planet. line.
1: Yeah, what write cool, down. <laughs> what a cool job description, by the way. Yeah.
0: Right?
2: <laughs>
1: that is great. Right.
2: If you have the collector gene, and you like to collect stuff. This is, this is it, right? I mean, you gotta be at the museum. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: Um Ian I see that you work with teens during the summertime. Do you still do that and can you talk a little yeah. bit about that kind of is that an outreach?
2: Yeah, it is. So we we run a program called the Teen Science Scholars and we kind of think of our uh, you know we do outreach in lots and lots of different ways, but when it comes to sort of doing that informal education of students we kind of, you know, area focused on teens, one kind of focused on undergrads and one kind of focused on graduate students. But for the teens we run this program, which is actually really quite remarkable and is all donor funded. So it's like, you know, private donations and things like that, but it's very well funded. We really focus on kids who would be the first in their family to go to college. And we really want kids who represent the demographics of Denver, the greater Denver area. And then the third sort of criteria is this idea that they're, they have a a passion for science and right. And we are, we give them a chance to just sort of figure out what it might be like to be a scientist. And so they they get paid a summer salary because we know that a lot of these kids really do need a summer job, right? They're going to get a job at the grocery store or something like that. So we pay them uh, a summer salary and they come and work right alongside the scientists and we just put them to work in the field and the collections. And so they do about, I don't know, about 160 to 200 hours of work. And then they have a big showcase where they need to present a, a scientific poster, if you will, but they can do it in all different kinds of, formats. Lots of them do videos or they do presentations on a collection that they've been working on. By and large, these are kids that are local to the museum. And we take 20 a year, and they're in archaeology or sciences, zoology, health sciences. You know, all, runs okay. the gamut. Do they have to so, apply then? Yeah, it's pretty competitive. We're taking about twenty kids out of maybe three hundred and fifty applications Ooh. or so. Oh my gosh,
0: yeah. that's yeah, that's tight. Yeah. Okay, what an amazing oh. opportunity, though. I mean, to get exposed at that age to to really, you know, fundamental research is a crazy yeah cool
2: thing, right? this is one of the ways we can give back, right? Since since we aren't teachers per se, you know, we help build that network for these kids to get into college, to, you know, figure out how to navigate those systems and maybe to go on. And we've had a number of kids get their PhDs and, and move on even beyond that, which is really cool. That's really
1: cool.
0: Uh, Yeah. That's awesome.
1: Ian. So one final question, and uh, we always end our interviews with this, this question right here. So, do you have a day? What's been your best day as a geoscientist slash paleobotanist? What's your best
2: day you had? Wow! Holy moly! Um, I guess what pops into my head, I, I, you know, is this story of the discovery at Corral Bluffs. You know, that was just a moment of incredible elation and knowing that we had literally sort of you know, figuratively and literally sort of cracked a code to, um, you know, unleash a whole bunch of data on this problem that was really important to lots of paleontologists and turns out to lots of modern biologists and ecologists as well. And we kind of knew it was happening when it was happening, which is kind of unusual too. I, I think I've been fortunate to make other discoveries and not really quite realize they were happening when they were happening. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, this one, this one we we knew. So I think that day is is definitely burned into the gray matter. It's okay. not going, it's not going away anytime soon. Wow. Yeah.
0: <laughs> That's a good answer. Yeah. Yeah. With that, Ian, this this has been super fun. Uh, we've, we've, you know, been nerding out a lot talking to you, yeah. uh, but we really appreciate yeah. the time. This has been super informative and yeah. super, super exciting stuff that we talked about. So we yeah, really appreciate your time. I want to reiterate that, um, Ian,
1: you, um, you just, you have this, this passion and passion passion drives inspiration. And so I, you know, it's just, uh, it's been a really cool day for me to get to talk to you. I really oh, appreciate your time. Thanks, yeah.
2: Chris. Well, yeah. my God, reach out when you bring, if you bring the kids back to Colorado. Awesome.
0: Yeah. Uh, I, Ian, I predict you're going to be getting a phone call in like a week and a half. <laughs> when he's planning the trip. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
2: absolutely.
0: Yeah. Ian, thank you so much for your time. We
1: really yeah. appreciate it. It's been this great. It's been great.
2: Really oh, you're that. welcome. I hope, hopefully I gave you guys a break to ask some questions. I know I, I have a tendency to talk too much, so. No, no, it's <laughs> yeah. all good. Yeah, well, <laughs> we love so, it. So does Chris. Yeah. So it's, it's <laughs> better.
0: What a yeah. fun time that was. Oh man, we could have, we could have talked for I a know. longer. I, w-
1: I would like to um, suggest to our listeners um, two videos that if you just do a Google search on this, and one of them is how the earth was made, the Rockies, it goes into some other detail that we didn't get into on our podcast. The other video that I would recommend, which is by PBS, is called The Rise of the Mammals. Those are absolutely
0: fantastic videos to watch. But that's a wrap. Super fun episode. And uh, tune in next week for more Planet Geo. And as usual, if you liked this episode if you if you got something from this podcast all we ask is that you share it with somebody who you think would find it interesting as well and take care awesome see you